This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Celebrating 150 years of college football. The Southeastern Conference played its first football games in 1933. America was a changed place with the Great Depression raging. College football in the South was changing as well. The players no longer all sons of the patrician elite, but rather young men coming from the same kinds of places as a future All-American named Pat Dye. I was raised in Blythe, Georgia, 20 miles south of Augusta. You know, to town about 200. No concrete. No pavement, three general stores, three cotton gins. We had a cotton farm. We row crop 3,000 acres with two row tractors and mules. And we had about 20, 25 families living on the place. They'd all made their living out of that farm. About half black, half white. I ain't never been segregated in my life. We grew up together, worked in the field together, picked cotton together, loaded watermelon together, hauled hay. And my daddy was, uh, you know, he was, he, he never, I don't think, he, he might not even know what color we were because he treated us all the same. <laughs> and he was a good farmer, but he was a hell raiser. And I don't know how my mama fell in love with him because lived hard and drank hard. But probably the most honest man I've met in my life. Pat Dye was just one of hundreds of those farm boys, generations of kids who wouldn't have had a prayer of going to college were it not for football.
got flashed, but we'll find it out. Long lay dying. It was September 1935, and the populist Louisiana senator had been shot two days earlier at the state capitol building in Baton Rouge. His last words, according to a legend, God, please don't let me die. I have so much work to do. And who will take care of my darling LSU? We start from the bottom. That the 25 or more million American families shall have a homestead. Lawyer, orator, governor, senator, and presidential hopeful, Long was one of the most colorful, most beloved, and most despised politicians who ever lived. He had a lot of enemies, but he always had a lot of uh, supporters because of that facility for taking a problem and solving it. He could be very genteel and very well-spoken. He could speak perfect English to an upscale crowd. That would mean that there'd be no such thing as a man without a home and something to eat and something to wear and a job. But then he could tone it down and have a Southern dialect and be a little rougher if he was talking to a, uh, a different audience. Huey Long's self-professed mission was to help the poor his mantra, every man a king. No kind of a law except one that gives employment, homes, and comfort, and education to our people will satisfy us. In Long's Louisiana, in the midst of the Great Depression, much of the state was little more than a backwoods, mosquito-infested swamp. It was deplorable. There was less than 300 miles of paved road in Louisiana. There was 25% unemployment, 25% illiteracy rate. 20% of the school-age kids couldn't afford to go to school because they couldn't afford school books. We needed, to, we needed some massive changes. The corporate element of this state who ransacked this state for the element of their allies are being told what they can do and what they can't do. He would believe that a prestigious and nationally recognized football program would be a symbol for a revitalized Louisiana. Huey Long didn't really know much about football in the beginning. He saw that LSU had good crowds and he liked crowds. He saw that the media gave LSU a lot of attention and he liked media attention. He started a massive building program, tripled the enrollment, doubled the faculty. 
my favorite is, is that he wanted to build a longer swimming pool. And somebody said, well, you know, a swimming pool's like a football field. You know, it's a baseball diamond. It can only be so big. And he said, no. So he built the swimming pool. And then if they ever had a swimming meet, they had to put like a board across the middle because it was longer than it had to be. Everything had to be better. The band had to be bigger and better. He increased the band uh, membership from 28 to 240. He wrote the song that LSU plays before it still goes on to the field today, Touchdown for LSU. I'm here for the sole purpose of enjoying a football game. He believed that if we traveled well, uh, that would bring more acclaim to the school. There was a big game that LSU was going to play against Vanderbilt. The problem was that the, the railroad was charging $19 per student to get him to the game. He went to the president of the railroad and he said, we are looking for a discount ticket for our student body. And the president said, well, I'm sorry, we can't do that. He said, well, the railroad bridges in this state are taxed for $100,000. Their value is over a million. So I think I would have no trouble going to our legislature and asking them to increase the, the tax basis for, for your railroad. And so the president paused a second and said, we'll let all the students go for $6. We want to thank the people of Tennessee and their railroads for having helped us to get this low rate. Huey made a big announcement that all students were going to be allowed to go to the game for $6. And if you didn't have the money, he would loan it to you. So then all the kids start crowding around him and he pulled out money from his pocket and started handing $6 to each kid, that, each student that came over to him. They would write him IOUs, but they never paid him back. LSU beat undefeated Vanderbilt 29-0. To the delight of their always passionate, frequently meddlesome first fan. Huey Long would draw plays. He would give pep talks at halftime during the games. He would run it up and down the sidelines. There was a couple coaches that, that weren't as successful as he wanted them to be. Long even insured Hall of Fame coach Biff Jones lost his job after Jones refused to let him address the team at halftime of the last game of the 1934 season. Biff Jones said, no one talks to the team but me. And Huey said, well, I'm getting tired of tying and losing games. And Biff said, well, get this, Senator. Win, lose, or draw, this is my last game at LSU. Well, LSU came from behind and won the ball game. Biff had second thoughts Sunday morning. And some of the people that were close to both Biff Jones and Huey Long went to see uh, the Senator that morning he was adamant about not taking uh, Biff Jones back. He was going to find the best coach in America. Alas, Long wouldn't live to see new coach Bernie Moore lead the senator's beloved Tigers to a number two ranking in 1936. He died from that gunshot wound at age 42. 
350 miles northeast of Baton Rouge, the 1934 Alabama Crimson Tide were coached by a Notre Dame graduate, Frank Thomas, who'd played for the legendary Newt Rockne. The powerhouse Tide were anchored by two ends from Arkansas who knew of one another from their days as high school rivals. Don Hudson was from Pine Bluff, and one of the most feared receivers to ever play the game. And Paul Bear Bryant from Fordyce was a six foot three inch behemoth, tough, nasty, and always ready for a fight. He had a broken bone in his leg, and they go to play Tennessee. They're in the locker room before the game. Hank Crisp, who is Frank Thomas's number one assistant coach, he's going around making the speech. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, that Bryant, he's going to be after their asses today. Brian said, I had a broken leg. I was dressed, but I wasn't expecting to play. But he said, oh, it's just a little bone. He said, well, <laughs> you know what I'm thinking? A little bone in your leg is a... What could he do? He had to play. He plays the game of his life with a broken leg. In his junior year, Bryant met the love of his life. When Mary Harmon encountered him for the first time walking across campus, he starts chatting her up and says, well, you know, how about a, how about a date? And, uh, and she starts looking through her book, flipping through. Well, how about next, uh, how about the 27th or whatever? And he, and he, he said, well, shoot, I was talking about tonight. Storms off. Later that afternoon, a call comes in on the community telephone back at the gym. It was Mary Harmon. She said, well, I've rearranged my schedule. I can see you tonight. Powell has it running, cutting inside a tackle, and he's almost over. There he goes. Alabama crushed Stanford in the 1935 Rose Bowl. Alabama's ball it comes back to Howell. He's running wide. Quarterback Dixie Howell and Don Hudson each had huge games. And Morgan Blake, a longtime Southern sports writer who covered seven Rose Bowls, called the 34 Alabama team the best he ever saw. What this college needs is a good football team. And you can't have a good football team unless you have good football players. My boy, I think you've got something there, and I'll wait outside until you clean it up. The year that they came up with the idea of the Southeastern Conference was the same year that the Marx Brothers made a movie called Horse Feathers. You realize what it means if Huxley loses his game? It means shame, disgrace, humiliation. And besides, you're crazy if you don't play the ace. If you watch that movie, you can tell that football and its relationship to colleges is very much on Americans' minds right in the middle of the Great Depression. Football has always been a diversion, but in the 1930s, it was probably what kept a lot of colleges alive economically. They're losing their funding, states are cutting budgets left and right. It's really football that kind of keeps them alive in a lot of ways. The University of Tennessee was doing relatively well compared to a lot of Southern schools in the 1930s. 
But if you go down, talk to someone at Georgia or Oklahoma, and they'll tell you once they had, they came up with this sort of booster mentality circa 1937, 1938, it's probably the reason they even were able to maintain state universities. In the fall of 1938, Coach Robert Neeland gathered his Tennessee Vols for a team meeting to reflect on the previous season. I may have had a part in our poor showing last year, Neeland said. I have been accused of spending too much time at the bridge table. If the squad will make an all-out effort to have a great year, he pledged, I will not play bridge a single night during the season. He wasn't a person you would get close to and get comfortable with. You'd go and he, he had this office and his desk was about as big as this office. I mean, it was, we thought it was the greatest, biggest desk you've ever seen. And he'd sit behind it and he'd made a point and had that big fist on the desk. And he'd say, I will do what's in the best interest of the team. And generally, you weren't going to say a lot. And he was going to tell you what was to be said. He had that military parenting. Tennessee went on a tear starting in 1938, posting three consecutive undefeated regular seasons. Generally, I thought football's a war game. What do you do in the battlefield? You have your strategy in what you're going to do, and then you have the tactics how you carry it out. So in football, you have your game plan. That's the strategy. And then your tactics is how you execute and perform. The best measuring stick for his team was always Alabama. He said, men, you have never lived till you've beaten Alabama. And then he paused in Tuscaloosa. And as for Bama, the respect was mutual, with the Tide once sending a young scout named Paul Bryant to Knoxville in early 1938 to watch the Vols. I learned one thing today, noted Bryant after, if we want to beat Tennessee, we're going to have to stop that Cafago. On the third Saturday of that October in 1938, George Cafago, a West Virginia native, ran all over the Crimson Tide for 120 yards in a 13-0 volunteer victory. Finishing the season at 10-0, Tennessee was invited to play in the school's first-ever bowl game against undefeated Oklahoma in the 1939 Orange Bowl. Nealon spoke to his team before the game. You boys know that a team's weakness often lies in its greatest strength. They have an all-American end named Young. You'll find him at your left. Sure enough, on the Vols' first play of the game, Cafago barreled into Waddy Young on a blocking assignment and sent him flying. It was power football. He was going to beat you at the line of scrimmage. Old George really laid the wood to that All-American, recalled Tennessee Captain Bowden Wyatt afterwards. That was a solid, legal lick in what was to be the roughest, toughest, physical contact football game I ever played. The volunteers sailed to a 17-0 victory. 
The Tennessee team, wrote Everett Clay in the Miami Herald, is the nearest thing to greased lightning we have ever seen on a football field. But are just as powerful. And it all came at a moment when America was embracing Civil War nostalgia with Gone with the Wind, released in 1939. It's also a way of reviving the lost cause, martial imagery. You see newspapers talking all the time about, oh, Auburn's men stood like Stonewall Jackson at Manassas, or, you know, that play was worthy of a flanking maneuver by Jeb Stewart. Whatever metaphors came to hand. That same year, the Tennessee Volunteers went undefeated and unscored upon in the regular season. The last team in NCAA history to achieve that feat. He had 71 consecutive quarters that weren't, wasn't scored on, and there were 17 consecutive games that we had shutouts. But he built his teams on defense. That's where he felt like the, the control of the game was. We're going to stay out here on the corners, and we're going to force you to come inside. And when you get inside, all my All-Americans are going to be there, and all my best athletes are going to be there. And that was his philosophy. The Volunteers carried a 23-game win streak into the 1940 Rose Bowl against the University of Southern California. But with George Cafago sidelined by an injured knee, Tennessee's streak came to an end in a 14-0 loss. Still, that didn't stop Grantland Rice from waxing poetically about Neyland's Vols afterwards. It was a magnificent charge in a lost cause. It was Pickett at Gettysburg. It was an outclassed team physically giving everything it had. Swanee, the University of the South, dropped out of the SEC after the 1940 season. They were an original charter member in 1932, but would always be remembered for the undefeated 1899 team, which won five games during a six-day road trip. The 1899 team set, set an impossible standard. Uh, that was both a blessing and a curse. You will always fall short of that mark. In the school's eight seasons in the SEC, Swanee never won a conference game. And after leaving the SEC, eventually became a Division III program. Nineteen forty was perhaps the best season ever in the history of Mississippi State football. When the Maroons, as they were then known, were led by All-America and SEC Player of the Year, Buddy Elrod. A tie at Auburn left them behind Tennessee in the conference, but MSU capped off their undefeated season with an Orange Bowl win over Georgetown, 
following year, Mississippi State got its first SEC title with a victory over Ole Miss in the annual Battle for the Golden Egg. Then, for the last game of their season, the Maroons traveled to Northern California by train and defeated the University of San Francisco Dons before heading to Los Angeles on December 7th, 1941. On that same day, Paul Bear Bryant, now an ambitious 28-year-old assistant coach at Vanderbilt, was in the midst of a long drive on the way to a job interview. Arkansas was going to interview him to be the head coach. He was driving over for his interview, listening to the radio. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Washington, the White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further development. He said, I knew then I wasn't going to be coaching football. And he turned around in Memphis and drove back to Nashville and enlisted in the Navy. Back in California, the Mississippi State Maroons also knew they'd soon be trading their cleats for military boots. Harvey Boots Johnson, a star on the 1940 team, would be killed in a bombing raid over Japan. Buddy Elrod, after marrying an MSU cheerleader named Nikki Mosley, would become a fighter pilot and get shot down over Germany, where he was taken as a prisoner of war. There were two things that he told me. Is number one, is it's never all about you. So he viewed that, playing football, being a fighter pilot, being a leader of men, that it was the team. That was the issue. And then the other one was never sit with your back to the door. Elrod would survive and return to the U.S. and then serve the country again in Vietnam, continuing to support the Bulldogs until his death in 1998. He was proud that this country had given our family opportunity to be the things that we were. To those that much is given, much is expected. To Elrod and so many of his teammates and rivals, the idea of fighting a war felt almost natural in a way. The camaraderie of the huddle transferring to the battlefield. Ralph Shug Jordan, a Selma, Alabama native, gave a huge part of his life to his alma mater, Auburn. The rest he gave to his family and his country when he went off to World War II. He was very much a Southern gentleman, but underneath all that gentlemanliness was steel, rock hard steel. Jordan saw action in North Africa and Sicily before being wounded on the beaches of Normandy. D-Day, he was wounded a few hours after the landing, but he would not go, go get treated because he felt like he had to help some of the other guys. He received a Purple Heart and the Bronze Star before recovering and heading off to another stint, this one in Okinawa. And you've been shot at and wounded, 
You kind of have a good perspective on football. It's important, yes, but it's not a be-all and end-all. January 1st, 1944, LSU started the Orange Bowl with Joe Nagata, a Japanese-American at fullback. Later that fall, Joe Nagata was a member of the 442 Regimental Combat Team in some of the most horrific fighting of World War II in the mountains of Italy. The 442 was a Nisei unit that were all Japanese-American. Joe Nagata certainly could have been bitter, considering that after Pearl Harbor, his family's grocery store in Louisiana had been shut down by the FBI because as Japanese-Americans, they were suspected of being spies. The 442 wanted to prove that they were loyal to this country, and they proved it. Nobody else was decorated anymore. As for Tennessee's Robert Neeland, he was off to his Second World War in Asia to oversee supplies coming through the Himalayan mountains. When I was 15, I got off the bus with about five other young people my same age. Somebody got the idea of seeing how many streetlights we can knock out with rocks. We counted, there were about 26 lights that we knocked out, and uh, I got two of them. All of the papers uh, came out in a few days with our names on the front page and our parents' names, too. And so my mother told me, she says, you know, you're going to have to write your dad and tell him what you did. I said, oh, please don't make me do that. But I finally did. So when I finally got the letter back, he talked about the war effort. And then he comes down to the very last part. He said, oh yeah, about those street lights. I'm just embarrassed that a son of mine out of 26 lights could only knock out two. When I was your age, I could have gotten that many left-handed. Breaking ground gainer. This is one of the biggest moments of my life, which is two up to date. One is receiving this trophy, and the other was when the United States Marines let me put this uniform on. A few weeks after George's star running back, Frank Sinkwich became the SEC's first ever Heisman Trophy winner. The conference champion Bulldogs embarked on a 2,500-mile cross-country trip. It was December of 1942, and the Rose Bowl was waiting. The four-day train ride laid bare the promise of a land that country kids like them had once only dreamed of seeing. Far out of sight and mind was their only loss of the season to rival Auburn. You grew up hearing about the Rose Bowl game 
and who you are playing in it. It's, it's probably one of the, the biggest events of my life. The team met glamorous movie stars like Bob Hope, Rita Hayworth, and Ava Gardner. It was the golden age of Hollywood, a setting offering the ultimate escape from news of World War II and all its horrors. The stars in the limelight offered a stark contrast to the taskmaster approach of their coach, Wally Butts. When you played for Butts, there was no, no humor. You did everything his way. You never gave up. You played hard all the time. Frank Sinkwich, the Heisman winner, was battling an injury, so the Bulldogs would have to rely solely on the sophomore Charlie Trippy. There were different styles, and Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside. Sinkwich Inside, Trippy Outside, and they became devastating. Frank was tough. I avoided people. He, he, he ran over them. That was the difference between us. <laughs> Trippy was a triple threat. He could run. He could throw. Uh, he was also a pass receiver. I got to know him later because when I played at Georgia, he was our backfield coach. I have since talked to a lot of people around the SEC back in those days. Every person I talked to said Charlie Trippy was the greatest college football player that ever played. I came from a coal mining area. The only way I could go to college was through football. Georgia dominated UCLA all game long, but led only 2-0 until late. Sinkwich had two badly sprained ankles and he couldn't play. Trippy moved the ball down inside the three-yard line. Coach Butts sent Sinkwich in the game to let him score. The Bulldogs won it nine nothing. And the after party was as glitzy as the run-up to the bowl, providing no shortage of stories to tell for years to come. Well, Bill Godwin, who was a country boy from Arkansas, after the game, went to a party looking around for somebody to dance with. And Mickey Rooney and Ava Gardner, they were married at the time, and he goes over and asks her to dance. He introduced himself, I'm Bill. She says, I'm Ava, I'm Mickey's wife. So they jitterbugged a time or two, and then slow number came up, and it was a rather warm embrace on the dance floor, and she gave him a kiss, and with that, Bill said he's looking down, and Mickey Rooney saying, come on, Ava, we're going home. After missing two and a half seasons while in the military, Charlie Trippy returned to Athens in 1945 and then the next year led the Bulldogs to a perfect 11-0 season. But the team felt overlooked in the polls with just a number three ranking, and Georgia fans were disappointed with Trippy's second-place spot in the Heisman voting. 
you got to think the Northern Riders at some point were like, what's going on with this Georgia thing? They win an Orange Bowl, then they win a Rose Bowl, 46 go undefeated and win a Sugar Bowl. I think they were just tired of giving them awards. Back in Tennessee, Robert Neeland returned in 1946 for a third stint with the Vols and a new rank, Brigadier General. Four of his players never made it home, killed in action. When Bear Bryant returned from the war, he accepted his first head coaching job at the University of Maryland in 1945 before being recruited to coach the Kentucky Wildcats the very next year. He was almighty God when I was in Kentucky. Every kid was scared to death of him. He would, you know, kick you on the ass sometimes. Never with the point of the shoe, always with the side of the shoe. Bryant then, and later in his Alabama years, would recruit large classes only to run half of them off and exercise in survival of the fittest. But when we got down there and went to the camp, uh, we went out there with about 140 guys. Every night, five or six would leave. They snuck out. You'd hear the uh, suitcases hit the floor from the second story. And they would go down to the Greyhound bus station and get on those buses. After the first night, Brian and the coaches assigned to go to the bus stop. It was a really good one. They run out there and snatch him and take him back. What ain't good is let them go through. But out of that 140 that we went in there with, we came back out with 40. And the 40 of us were the meanest, toughest, some of us. Kentucky, during this period, integrated its student body. It was the only institution in the Southeastern Conference that was integrated at that point. It would be for quite a while. Bryant wanted to recruit black athletes. University wouldn't let him. As powerful as he was, he, he couldn't change segregation, so he just let it drop. Young, determined, and ambitious, Bryant found immediate success through his militaristic approach to the game. He didn't understand it from books. He understood it somehow instinctively, and he learned a lot by making mistakes. Bryant's Wildcats went 9-2 in 1949 and then went to the Orange Bowl to play Santa Clara. The Kentucky players were excited to see the Florida beaches and enjoy the bowl festivities. But Bryant would put the team through three-a-day practices for two weeks under a hot sun prior to the game. Leading 7-0 at the half, Kentucky wilted and was upset 21-13. Coach just plain overworked us, defensive back Charlie McClendon remembered. By the time the game rolled around, we weren't fired up. We just wanted to get it over with so we could go home. The next season, Kentucky went 11-1 winning the school's first SEC football championship. 
Kentucky had come within a, a blush of being undefeated. They had gotten beat on a, uh, a snowy day in Knoxville by his nemesis, General Nayland. They used to kid me around the office that any time Tennessee was mentioned during a coffee break, I had to excuse myself and be sick, Bryant once said. They weren't far wrong. Everybody thought Neyland had a jinx on us. It was no jinx. He was a better coach. He had better football players. And I couldn't stand it. Brian never beat him. They tied in 52, the last year General Neyland coached. But uh, we, we beat him every other year. The 1950 season was capped off by a stunning performance in the Sugar Bowl against the Oklahoma Sooners, who were undefeated, ranked number one in the nation, and riding a 31-game win streak. First and 10 on the Sooners, 22. Pirelli fades, takes the handoff. Kentucky upset the Sooners 13-7 to on the strong arm of future Hall of Famer Vito Babe Pirelli. Kentucky wins 13-7. to Brian was shocked when Bud Wilkinson, the reigning master of college football, the Bear Bryant of the day, came into the locker room after his Kentucky team had upset Oklahoma and congratulated them on their victory. That marked him deeply. Bryant tended to pout after losses in those days. And he was taught about sportsmanship by the guy he beat that had a profound impact on the guy he would become. But it didn't take Bryant long to realize that football was never going to achieve parity with basketball at Kentucky. He was always going to be an Adolph Rupp shadow. Then and now, Kentucky was basketball country, and coach Adolph Rupp was the king of the bluegrass, eventually winning four NCAA championships and 27 SEC titles. I don't think it was personal, but Bryant had to be the biggest uh, horse in the pasture. So it was just a matter of time before that was not going to work for him. Letting Bryant slip away was the worst thing that ever happened to Kentucky football. General Neyland's third and final run as Tennessee head coach spanned from 1946 to 1952. All throughout, his dictatorial style never wavered. Say you had an 11 o'clock meeting, you wouldn't dare be late. At five minutes of 11, he'd look around and put your name on board if you weren't there. So you'd walk in there five minutes early, and there'd be Haslam, and he'd check you off. Tennessee football, based on the General Neyland philosophy, the kicking game and defense. Don't beat yourselves. Don't fumble the ball. Fumbles killed him. If a, if a guy fumbled the ball, he had to carry a, a football to class the whole next week. You'd see a guy walk around the campus, and he's got the football under his arm. He had to carry a football every place he went. But after two subpar 500 seasons in 1947 and 48, people began to wonder if Neyland had lost his touch. His single-wing offense was antiquated, critics said, and cries for his dismissal rose around Knoxville. 
he was going to beat you at the line of scrimmage. Really, the read option and the shotgun, this is single wing stuff. I mean, everybody thought, well, this was an old, ancient system that didn't work. But it worked well. And it suddenly worked again in 1950 when the Volves went 10-1 and one in the regular season. One of the greatest games we ever played, we played Alabama here in Knoxville. The score is 9-7 to seven with about a minute to play. Coach sat on the bench, and our fullback, Andy Kozar, dove over and scored, and we went 14-9. And after the game, I was in the training room, and this reporter came up to General Nalen, and he said, uh, at the end of the game, one play decides the game. And you are sitting there calmly on the sidelines. And he said, I have prepared my team for every contingency. So all I can do is sit back and watch. In the Cotton Bowl, the Vols would face the Texas Longhorns and escape with a 20-14 victory that earned them acclaim of the mythical national championship. Post-game, Nealon showed uncharacteristic emotion in the locker room. I love every one of you sons of bitches, he told the players. It was the happiest his seniors said they'd ever seen it. The following year, the Vols won Nealon another national championship going undefeated in the regular season before losing to Maryland in the Sugar Bowl. Brigadier General Nealon would coach one more year before retiring, though he'd continue on as Tennessee's athletic director. And the general watched practice every day he was sitting in the stands with his stopwatch always, but he didn't have a whistle. He didn't coach. He didn't yell at the coaches. Freshmen weren't eligible to play on the varsity. So we practiced against the varsity every day. And our first scrimmage was Saturday that first week of September. And I got knocked around a few times, and what you do as a B-team quarterback. But I went up on the quarterback option keeper, and two or three people missed me. Then I broke one or two to the safety man, had four or five people miss me, and I didn't score, but I made 20 or 25-yard runs. He yelled down, who is number 12? That's Major from Huntland, General. When the day was over, I ran all the way from the playing field to the corner of drugstore, and they had two little pay phones. I called my, house, my home in Huntland. <laughs> I said, I said, Daddy, they missed tackles in college, just like they did in high school. As for Neeland, when he was around friends and players, he liked to quote his former commander, General Douglas MacArthur. On the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that on other days, on other fields, will bear the fruits of victory. We had a coach who served in both world wars on two different continents and ended up having championships after each. There were six undefeated seasons in his three stints as the Vols coach. 
F.M. Williams wrote in the Nashville Tennessean, Just as he had dominated college football, Nealon dominated final rights for him. He ordered that as little commotion as possible be made when he died in 1962. The service lasted 10 minutes, with the audience reciting the last words together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. He represents something from the 19th century. He represents something from our world wars. And we still have this memory with him in the, the era when the South is global. His memory kind of casts a shadow over the entire conference, let alone the University of Tennessee. Here in the state of Alabama, no pro basketball, no pro baseball, no pro football. The biggest thing in the state, on the street, in the state house, at church, at Sunday school, at Bible study, is who's going to win the Auburn Alabama game. And it's 365 days a year. In 1948, Auburn and Alabama renewed a rivalry that had been discontinued in 1907. Pressure to play the game had increased to the point where the Alabama state legislature was threatening to withhold funds from the schools. You had this Cold War for 41 years because they wouldn't play each other. And Alabama had nothing to, to gain by playing Auburn. Alabama was the dominant program as a national uh, powerhouse at that point, and Auburn wasn't. The 1948 game was played at a neutral site, 44,000-seat Legion Field in Birmingham, the largest stadium in the state. In a symbolic gesture the morning of the game, the two school student body presidents buried a hatchet in a local park. Then Alabama won 55 to nothing. My freshman year at, at Auburn, we did not win a football game. Zero and 10, and that's hard to do. I felt like my high school team could beat them. I was really disillusioned. Uh, I thought they were very undisciplined. After Auburn finished the 1950 season, 0-10, Earl Brown was fired as head coach, with Ralph Shug Jordan hired to replace him. The Tiger program was in ruins. Auburn was nothing. Um, it's hard to imagine how destitute and desperate Auburn was. Uh, they didn't have money to open the doors. They didn't have money for uniforms. Coach Jordan and Jeff Beard went uptown to Auburn National Bank. And a former player loaned them $100,000. They didn't loan it to the university. They didn't loan it to the athletic department. They loaned it to Jeff Beard and Chuck Jordan so they wouldn't have enough money to open the doors. They paid it back, too. <laughs> 
Auburn's Cliff Hare Stadium held just 21,500 spectators at the time, and the Tigers played just three games at home, but they managed to finish five and five. It was a start. Meanwhile, some hundred miles northeast at Georgia Tech, an original Southeastern Conference school, they came to call their happy Saturdays Dodd's Luck. Though if it's better to be lucky than good, the truth was that as a player and a coach, Hall of Famer Bobby Dodd was both. Coach Bryant wrote in his book, I would rather look across the field on Saturday afternoon and see anybody other than Dodd, because Dodd could beat you with his brain. As a kid, Dodd had been a hustler in a Kingsport, Tennessee pool hall. His first year as Georgia Tech's head coach in 1945, he hustled money on the golf course and at the poker table. Lucky? You bet your life I'm lucky. I'm lucky and so are my teams, he once said. It's a habit. You know, if you think you're lucky, you are. Robert Neeland, who coached Dodd at Tennessee, called him nothing short of the greatest competitor he'd ever coached. What Bobby Dodd took away from his time under General Neeland was that precision. This is how we're going to run this play. And if you're two inches to the left or the right, then you're doing it wrong. What was different about Dodd versus his mentor, Robert Nealon would wear you out during practice during the week. Bobby Dodd's practices were pretty lax. Coach Dodd didn't give you rah-rah pep talks. He said you need to be prepared. And that was one of the reasons we never scrimmaged uh, after the season started. He didn't want anybody hurt. His feeling was always, save it for the game. In 1952, Georgia Tech took an undefeated record into its regular season finale against Georgia. In an in-state rivalry dubbed Clean Old Fashioned Hate, trailing seven to three in the third quarter, Bobby Dodd went into his bag of tricks, calling for a halfback pass on a fourth and four on the Bulldogs' 10-yard line. If there was a draw it up in the dirt coach, during the 50s and 60s, it was Bobby Dodd. There would be no razzle-dazzle necessary when the Yellow Jackets defeated Ole Miss 24-7 in the Sugar Bowl, earning them a split of a national championship in Dodd's finest season. In 1954, the late John Heisman, the former Georgia Tech coach, and one of the early pioneers of Southern college football was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. He had been instrumental in legalizing the forward pass, but is, of course, best remembered for the trophy that since his death in 1936 has carried his name. If you really want to get people of a certain age completely wound up, mention 1956 and mention Johnny Majors, losing the Heisman to Paul Horning. Tennessee has long seemed snake-bitten in the Heisman balloting, with four runner-up finishes. 
1956, Johnny Majors finished second in the vote after leading his team to a perfect regular season. Paul Horning won the trophy quarterbacking a Notre Dame team that finished 2-8. and eight. When I was a student at Tennessee, Paul Horning used to do Paul Horning's college football preview special. In the summer prior to 1991, Paul Horning and his TV crew come in, and they set up in Coach Majors' office. And Paul Horning immediately goes, Johnny Majors, it's great to be here. First things first, who really should have won the Heisman in 1956? And Coach Majors, without even missing a beat, he goes, Jimmy Brown at Syracuse. Next question. And I asked Coach Majors later, I go, how long have you been sitting on that? He goes, I've been waiting on him to ask me that question for 30 years. It was a time in Atlanta uh, in which it was very much segregated as many of the southern states were. The Fox Theater had a stairway that went up the side there on Postelian for the entrance uh, for blacks, and they couldn't go in the front door and had to go and sit just in the balcony. While college football continued to be a uniting force for the country in the 1950s, by 1954, race had begun to divide it ever more bitterly. The flame was sparked by the Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education that called for all public schools to be integrated. In August of 1955, a 14-year-old African-American named Emmett Till was lynched for allegedly offending a white woman in a Mississippi grocery store. That December in Alabama, Rosa Parks refused to give her seat to a white passenger on a bus. And back in Atlanta, Bobby Dodd's Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets finished their regular season 8-1-1 one, and, one, and received an offer to play Pittsburgh in the Sugar Bowl. But one of Pitt's players, Bobby Greer, would be an issue for the state of Georgia. After we got the bid, we were told that the governor of Georgia, then Marvin Griffin, had made a decision that Georgia Tech could not play in the Sugar Bowl because they had one black player. I am for segregation. I'm for it 100%. I am not for it on Monday and against it on Tuesday. Governor Griffin wrote a telegram to his Board of Regents. It is my request that athletic teams of the University System of Georgia not be permitted to engage in contests where the races are mixed. Coach Dodd was bound and determined to play the game. It was important to him that it be integrated. Bobby Dodd refused to listen to the governor and received backing from the university president and his players. The Georgia Tech students, God bless them, were having marches that we should play. The student body actually marched on the governor's mansion. A large number went up the Prado. The students knocked on the door and gave a petition. Uh, we believe that we should be allowed to, to play. 
Georgia Tech won the Sugar Bowl after, of all things, a pass interference penalty called on Bobby Greer gave the Yellow Jackets the ball at the one-yard line. From there, Tech scored the game's only touchdown. We made a pact among the players that there'd be no trash talk in any way. And at the 50th anniversary of that, Bobby Greer said that he was treated with respect by all of the Tech players. About a quarter of a century after Huey Long's death, along came the 1958 LSU Tigers, one of the most legendary and dominant teams in SEC history. It all predates big TV, big money, big media. They were this mythic group of guys who just put it all together and won. LSU's 58 team may have come out of nowhere, but most of the roster hailed from Louisiana. Most of the people in southern Louisiana have some kind of French connection. They came from Nova Scotia and Canada. They were exiled by the English and they fled and they came down to south Louisiana. So there's a close tie to the land. And when you grow up there, LSU football is, is it. It's like this dream that you're reaching for, but most kids don't grab. For me, you know, coming out of high school, I wasn't, I wasn't All-State or anything like that. But I'd always dreamed as a kid of playing for LSU. I used to go out there when I was in junior high school, and I'd walk up and down those stands selling 7-Ups, Coca-Colas, make about $20 a night, and I thought I had all the money in the world. They became a model of greatness for all time in Baton Rouge, an undefeated team that captured the imagination of the entire country. It was an era when most of them still wore flat tops. A little more than a decade removed from World War II, roughly a decade before the horrors of Vietnam became apparent. It gave the, the people something to be proud of. They really felt like that this was their team, just because of all of us being pretty local. Not only were most of them from Louisiana, the starting backfield alone had three kids from Baton Rouge, who'd all go on to successful careers in pro football. Quarterback Warren Rabb, running back Johnny Robinson, and then the legendary halfback Billy Cannon. It was Billy Cannon. Hey, come on. <laughs> I mean, one of the great names in college football. Strong runner, great speed, could do it all. The team was led by Paul Dietzel, a 34-year-old baby-faced coach who'd come up with a scheme to combat college football's unique substitution rules, platooning three full squads. He had the white team, and the white team was his very best players, Billy Cannon, Johnny Robinson. Then you had the go team that was primarily offense. Then you had, of course, the Chinese bandits. It wouldn't be very politically correct today, but in 1958, it, they were a sensation. 
their name derived from a comic strip of the time, which referred to Chinese bandits as the fiercest people in the world. Life magazine published a photo shoot in 1958 playing off that idea. He took 11 guys that were not good enough to play on the first offensive team or the first defensive team. They were a hell of a defensive football team. When we went in there, we thought we were as good as the other guys who played ahead of us. And we were the third teamers. But we were the football playing darlings of LSU. I just think we had a closeness that the three-team system magnified. After we won seven or eight games, our fullback got hurt. So they were going to move the guy that played linebacker on the bandits, Merle Shakespeare, up to play fullback on our team. Well, he refused to do it. He wanted to stay on the bandit team. Billy Cannon sealed the Tigers' 1958 perfect national title-winning season with a game-winning halfback option pass in the Sugar Bowl. At the conclusion of the season, the Associated Press named LSU Team of the Year over the New York Yankees, the Baltimore Colts, and the St. Louis Hawks. No other college team has, has received that honor since then. Of all the thousands that played college football, not many people can put a championship ring on their finger. More than half a century after Billy Cannon's greatest heights, when LSU announced plans to build a statue in his honor. 1958, National Champion, Cannon insisted that all his teammates be listed on its base. Through a life of ecstatic highs and painful lows, they remained that important to him. His story is mythic. And I think that's one thing that has a hold on the people here. His story is really a story of redemption. I mean, he had it all. He lost it all. And having nothing, he had everything. Born in 1937 in Mississippi, Cannon spent most of his childhood in Baton Rouge. His father had taken a number of jobs. He worked the docks, coal mines, the iron, Mills in Birmingham before landing a job in Baton Rouge at one of the petrochemical uh, industries. And that didn't last long because he suffered a amputation of one of his legs. So the family knew nothing but poverty. Billy was a three-sport star, football, track and field, and basketball at Estruma High School. It was a grim part of town. Sports offered a way out. Billy always had a reputation as a bit of a hellraiser. He had this immense talent, and, you know, talent kind of grants sometimes people extra chances. There was a dark side to Billy Cannon. In 1955, 
An 18-year-old Cannon received a 90-day suspended sentence for extorting money from men he'd seen with prostitutes. I think he was, he was difficult to know, even for his teammates. But they were all in awe of him. They didn't know him. He was a mystery, an enigmatic guy, but they, they all loved him still. We weren't that close because, you see, he was married. But you could call him anytime and talk to him. He would tell you what he thought. If it hurt your feelings or if it made you feel great, he was going to be honest with you. But look, if he didn't like you, he didn't like you. In 1959, with all the team's starters returning, Cannon and LSU started their quest to repeat as national champions, 6-0. But they had familiar company. The University of Mississippi, under coach John Vaught, was in the midst of its most successful run ever, having gone 44-9-1 over the previous five seasons with two SEC championships. In 59, the Rebels also won their first six games, setting up a showdown in Baton Rouge on Halloween night of two Southern rivals, both bidding for the national title. We were ranked number one and they were ranked number three in the country. There was a lot riding on that game. National championship, possibly. I mean, look, it was muggy, hot night. Halloween and then down in this part of the country when that fog starts moving in, you know, late at night. You can't hear anything when you're down there. It's noisy as hell. All them Cajun down there hollering. We got the ball early and went down and kicked a field goal. And uh, they stayed at three nothing for until the fourth quarter. Stands on his own 28. He gets a pass from center. He boots it and gets another nice kick away going way downfield. Billy Cannon watches it bounce. He takes it on his own 11. He comes back upfield at the 15. Stumbles momentarily. He's at the 20. Running hard at the 25. Gets away from one man for 30. Still runs at the 25. He's at the 50. The 45. I still get fired up when I hear it. We would never to fill the ball if it was 20-yard line on end. Never. We just let it go and hoping it'd go in the end zone. I'm turning, running back, and I surely I thought he wasn't going to pick it up. And the ball bounced right to him. And I turned around and looked for somebody to block. How many people touched him? Seven or eight. He is always leaning forward. And those legs have to run. He runs right down our sideline. And Coach Vault was a dapper dresser. He had on a gray shark skin suit. And he went down on both knees when Cannon went by. When he got up, he had these two mud packs on his knees where he got his, ruined his suit. Then I tried to tackle him. I hit him way up on his shoulder. He threw me off like a little puppy and he just kept running. It's one thing that made him so great. He's always in the moment, more than anybody else. That's how he lived his life. Balls to the wall, balls to the wall. Billy Cannon raised some 89 yards for a touchdown. Listen to the cheer for Billy Cannon as he comes off the field, right out of merit. 
Still, with the clock winding down, Ole Miss had a fourth down on the LSU two with a chance to win it. If they score that touchdown, Billy Cannon's run does not amount to anything. We get beat. But Cannon and LSU stopped Ole Miss. And all these decades later, Cannon's epic run still haunts the Rebels. Well, I left the game and went to the Baton Rouge Ferry and rode the ferry back and forth until they closed it at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was so shattered, I just, I didn't want to see anybody. That December of 59, Billy Cannon would win his school's first Heisman Trophy. And while Old Miss would actually get revenge against the Tigers in a 21-0 Sugar Bowl win, that only mattered so much because LSU had lost to Tennessee the week after their epic win over the Rebels. One iconic play on Halloween night had kept perhaps Mississippi's greatest team ever from a consensus national title. As for Cannon, his run would nonetheless endure as one of the most famous plays in college football history. And he'd go on to play 11 seasons of pro ball where he'd be an all-star and part of three AFL championship teams. Afterwards, he settled back in Baton Rouge with his family and opened a successful dental practice. But Cannon also had his demons, and in 1983, he got involved in a counterfeiting scheme after making some bad real estate investments and piling up gambling debts. He had a big family, he had debts. He had been a number one draft choice. You would have thought he made a lot of money, but he was a dentist in Baton Rouge. He was a legend at 22. He was a myth at 30. And it's hard to live up to that kind of fame. Billy Cannon spent two and a half years in federal prison. He humbled himself. A man who was proud and owned the world was, was on his knees. And that's where he needed to be to get atonement. In 1995, there'd be one final twist. When Cannon returned to prison, but not to serve time, Rather, he worked the last years of his life at Angola State Penitentiary as a dentist for inmates. They talked the world of him up there. He used to tell me, see, when he'd go back where the inmates were, he said he looked down the hallway, said all I could see his teeth shining. They was all so glad to see him. Cannon died in 2018, just before his statue outside Tiger Stadium was unveiled. He's gone now, and he's just immortalized. You would think that he lived this saintly kind of existence when, when he didn't. He lived a very human life. Back in that famous 1959 season, after Ole Miss and LSU took themselves out of the SEC race, the conference title would be decided in Athens, Georgia, in a renewal of the oldest rivalry in the Deep South. 
Auburn versus Georgia. We had the best team in 59. And, uh, we had, and of course, Francis was a key to it. I moved to Athens, Georgia from Washington, D.C. when I was 10 years old. I had a great life growing up. And my father was a preacher man, wonderful family, but I had no money. In college, I had a job at the chicken yards in the summertime. I cleaned out the chicken houses. It was hard, dirty, smelly work, $40 a week. It's okay, I got that. I, I wasn't a member of a country club. None of my teammates were a member of the country club. We were working people. We didn't have any money, but we had each other. Late in the fourth quarter of the showdown with Auburn, Tarkenton and Georgia were trailing Auburn 13-7 with the Tigers holding the ball. And then fate improbably intervened. There's a fake to the ball, the quarterback bootleg to the right. In trouble is the quarterback Harvard, and he fumbles, and Georgia has recovered. Georgia moved the ball down to the Auburn 12, and then their hopes would be decided by one last play. It's the last play. You know, we got one play to win or lose ball game. Fourth and 11, fourth and 12. Nobody sends me a play in. I don't go to the sideline and get a play. So Francis made one up. So I said, boys, I've got an idea. But he told Bill Harris, said, you block down on the attack for three counts and then run the corner route down and out. Barrel it to the left end zone. Then I'll hit you for the touchdown. That's what he's saying. Parkinson goes back to throw. He's looking. He's looking. He's firing deep on the left flat. It's complete. That clinched the SEC championship for us. Place is going crazy. The Bulldogs would punctuate their SEC championship that season with a victory over Missouri in the Orange Bowl to finish 10 and 1. In 1960, the Southeastern Conference was 27 years old. It had been formed during the Great Depression, endured a world war, and continued to grow through a decade of prosperity in America. The league had claimed 13 national championships in those 27 years, putting itself on equal ground with the rest of the country validating the dreams of the young men for whom the game of football had such immeasurable meaning. But other realities were undeniable. The South was living under Jim Crow, which would only further compromise and complicate how the league would approach the issue of race in the decade to come. a decade in which it would continue to be impossible to separate football from everything else in the South. <laughs> 